Thank you. You can be seated. If you have your Bibles, go ahead and uh, turn with me to the book of Esther, chapter two. Esther, chapter two, and you can hold your spot there. Um, we uh, we're going to move through a good bit of the book of Esther today. We're going to cover a whole book today, right? So you, you you're probably going to miss Mother's Day lunch. I'm just going to go ahead and put that. Up. Just kidding. So uh, that's a good way to run a church out, right? Uh, no, we're going to move through this whole entire book and pull out certain portions of it, but continuing the series called Hero. I want to ask you a question before we jump in or before we jump in have you ever had one of those moments where you realized soon after the door closed that you had missed an opportunity you ever had a moment like that when you missed an open door you missed an opportunity and you realized it soon after it had passed and uh maybe it was a financial opportunity maybe it was an opportunity for you to to take a new job or what have you and uh, you turned it down and and you realize right after it's like you know what I just missed an open opportunity and uh, I walked away from something that I should have jumped into maybe for you it was like the purchase of a new house or, or or something else that there was some competition involved right somebody else beat you to it because you just kind of shuffled your feet and missed the opportunity and uh, and ultimately you kind of went out with nothing rather than with what you could have could have had maybe it was a relationship maybe it was a chance to meet somebody maybe the stakes were really high maybe the stakes were really low but have you ever had that experience where you missed an open door because you did not embrace the moment. I think for all of us, we've been there. And the reason, you know, the reasons are really varied. Maybe it was because of fear. We didn't want to step through that open door. Maybe it was because we were distracted. We didn't even know an opportunity was on the table because we were too busy focusing on ourselves or our timeline or our agenda or whatever else pertaining to our own life. And we missed the opportunity in front of us. We've all been there, right? And, and the, the reasons that we missed some of these opportunities are virtually endless, well, today, I want to kind of speak to that a little bit as we continue in this series called Hero. And as we've jumped into this, to this series, there's really a coin with two sides, that, that two, two major truths we're unpacking in this series. On one side of that hero coin is the fact that God is the ultimate hero of every victory that we read of in the Bible. Every single victory that we see in the Bible, God is the ultimate hero. Now, we may be tempted to say, boy, look what David did. He killed a giant. But no, God is the ultimate hero. And in your story, story in your life whenever you know there's a rescue or some deliverance ride or some blessing that comes along you may be tempted to thank somebody else and we should right if they were involved in it but at the end of the day God is the ultimate hero that's one side of that hero coin the other side of the hero coin is that outside of salvation with Jesus himself often what God will do he'll reveal himself as hero through ordinary people like you and me he'll choose a shepherd like David to slay the giant he'll choose disciples like you and me to ultimately get the gospel to the ends of the earth seemingly right and so God often he's always the ultimate hero other side of the coin he often reveals himself as hero through people just like you and people just like me and so through the series we've been walking since Easter and looking at different characters from the scriptures as we've moved through this series. Uh, God is the hero, but he uses these, these people ultimately to show himself as heroes. So we looked at David recently, just, uh, well, just last Sunday, actually. One of the qualities that stands out about David, if you want to call it a hero quality, is his trust in the Lord. 
If you remember that story, 1 Samuel 17, we unpacked it last week. David knew that the victory was not his, it was God's. He knew the battle wasn't his, he even said it, 1 Samuel 17. He knew that God had equipped him, God had called him, God had ultimately put him in that position, and that God was going to bring the victory. And so that hero quality from David's life was that he had this immense trust in God, right? That same quality we have to demonstrate as well. Well, today we're going to add another hero to the mix. Her name is Esther. We're going to be in the book that bears her name. Now, if you want to look at a hero quality in Esther's life, where David's quality that we looked at was trusting the Lord, for her, it was embracing the moment. Esther is a perfect example of one who filled the role of hero. God was ultimately the hero through her, but he did it because she was willing to embrace the moment. If you remember every hero story that plays out, whether it's in a comic book, whether it's in a film, whether it's in the Bible, whether it's in real life, every hero story has a person or a group of people that are in danger or in peril, right? And always, always, the way the hero emerges is almost every time they'll come in from the outside, they step willingly into the peril, and they bring something with them to help facilitate a rescue, right? So there's people or a group in danger, the hero comes in from the outside willingly, steps into the peril, steps into the chaos, and then ultimately brings them out in rescue. That's pretty much every hero story that we're ever going to see. Now, when we look at the story of Esther today, we're going to see that same thing begin to unfold. And I'm going to give you a few principles along the way. And I hope you'll jot them down because they're important. The first one is this. We're going to see this so clearly in this story of Esther, and we see it elsewhere in the Bible as well. Being a hero involves listening, it involves looking, and it involves praying. Now, for you, hopefully, there's a part of you that doesn't want to just live life for yourself, right, and just amass a fortune and, and fill your resume with a list of accomplishments. Hopefully, there's a significant part of you that drives your whole life, really, that, that wants to live life in a way that makes an impact on other people. If you want to be a hero, right, then part of that is going to include, has to include listening and looking and praying, Here's what I mean by that. When you look, let, let's just look at David, for example, last Sunday. When you look at David, part of him being a hero started when he stood on one side of the valley with Israel and he looked across the valley and he saw the Philistines and he heard, he listened, he heard Goliath talking his trash talk from the other side of the valley, right? And when he listened, it, listened to that, what David said was, he looked around at his guys, right? And he said, who is this? I mean, who does this guy think he is to defy the army? of the living God he heard and he ultimately stepped in to the challenge now I never thought about this Jason one of our pastors mentioned it in conversation this week he said you know what King Saul himself was head and shoulders above everybody else I mean the scripture describes him that way head and shoulders above everybody else and King Saul himself the very king of Israel wasn't willing to go fight the giant but David heard the taunts he heard them differently than everybody else and he stepped into the mix you and I have to listen for the needs of people around us if we're going to be a hero in someone's life. And again, not so that we can get credit and glory and pat ourselves on the back and put our names on some list somewhere, look at the hero I am. No, it's not about that. Never was, never should be, right? But if we're going to step into that role, let God use us as a hero in someone's life, it often starts by listening. Nehemiah listened in the Old Testament. Had brothers come from Jerusalem. Nehemiah is a thousand miles away. And his brothers tell him, listen, Jerusalem's in shambles. The wall is torn down. The people are in peril. The gates have been burned. I mean, it's just, it's just demolished. And Nehemiah heard, 
and then he stepped into the chaos. We have to listen to the needs around us. We have to look for the needs around us. The disciples, remember the feeding of the 5,000? How did it start? The sun is setting. The hunger is growing. The people have nowhere to go. It's getting late. The disciples look at the peril. They look at the chaos, and they bring it to Jesus. They say, these people are starving. This is not going to be good. They're going to be falling out of here like they're at some concert and hadn't eaten all day, and then we need to do something for them. And they brought the need to Jesus and, and because they looked and they saw the need right and they took it to Jesus they stepped into the chaos and he used them to help remedy the need and then praying we have to pray how many times and I'm guilty of this how many times can we honestly say that when we get up our prayer consistently is Lord would you use me to be a hero to bring rescue to somebody else today how often do we pray that probably probably hardly ever we have no problem praying, and, and we should, right? Lord, would you meet my needs? Lord, would you keep me and my family safe? Lord, would you give me wisdom? Lord, would you bless me? Lord, would you take care of that meeting today that I've got? Lord, would you help me to find a parking place at the mall so that I don't have to walk really far? Lord, would you let miraculously somehow the line at Chick-fil-A be really, really short? We pray all those things, right? It's really short today, by the way. Um, yeah, we pray all those things because we're kind of thinking about ourselves. But how often do we say, Lord, would you use me literally today to be a hero in someone else's life? We don't often pray for that. We don't listen to the needs. We don't look to the needs. And we often don't pray to be an answer to the needs. Here's what we're going to see with Esther is that virtually all of this happens and she embraced the moment. So let me give a little bit of a setting. <clears throat> and I won't be lengthy in this. I don't want to get the glaze going because some of you can't stand history. But the setting is 483 B.C. pretty much, all right? So you're looking for almost 500 years before Jesus would be born that we read of in Matthew and Luke. 483 B.C. And what we find there in 483 B.C., it, it's about 100 years, give or take, since Judah had been taken off into captivity. It, you don't have to know Old Testament history to follow the story of Esther. It's really easy to follow. But just to put it in the context for some of you that like to read the Old Testament, this is about 100 years after Judah got hauled off to Babylon because of their sin. It's about 50 years after a good significant portion of them were allowed to go back to Jerusalem at the end of that exile right 483 bc we find that there are still jews living in the city of susa 483 bc is the time the location is a city called susa s-u-s-a it's one of the five major cities in the persian empire the persians ruled the world in this time so susa is the winter residence of the king his name is ahasuerus anybody want to Spell that for us. Any volunteers, any takers, right? Ahasuerus. Sometimes in your Bible, depending on your translation, Ahasuerus is his Hebrew name. Sometimes they'll use a different name, Xerxes or Xerxes I, same person, okay? Depending on which, you know, culture you want to pull his name from. So you've got 483 B.C., You've got some Jews who are still living in the city of Susa in the midst of the Persian Empire, probably there, even though many of them had already been re allowed to return back to Jerusalem. Some of them were born in Babylon over that 50 years. Some of them in the Persian Empire, some of them were old or they were not of good health to travel the 900 miles back to Jerusalem. So you've got a group of Jews living 
in the Persian Empire, in the city of Susa, the winter residence of King Ahasuerus, all right? So that's the setting. About three years into his reign, what Ahasuerus does is that he decides, you know what, I'm gonna throw a party, and I'm gonna show everybody how awesome I am. And this is a look-at-me kind of a party. And so he wants to magnify his splendor and his glory that he felt like he had. And so this really self-absorbed king, Ahasuerus, throws this big party. He has a feast. Uh, the Bible says it's 180 days. It's half a year long. Now, some commentators, you know, they say, I don't know if it was necessarily food and drink going for 180 days or if there were feasts associated with it along the way. Regardless, this is a half a year party of King Ahasuerus saying, look at me, I am awesome. Let's all realize this, okay? That's what the party is, is all about. It says it was so extravagant that uh, people were drinking their drink out of golden vessels, Anybody got any solid golden vessels? I've got some old Masters cups, the plastic, some old George Bulldogs cups from going to Sanford Stadium. Right? We've got some of those things and some fancy glass stuff, but I don't have any solid gold vessels at home that I'm drinking out of, right? My Dr. Pepper or Big K, all right? Dr. K, Dr. K, yeah. Here, they're drinking out of golden vessels. Here, they're celebrating the king for half a year. Here, it's a big-time throwdown party. And at the end of it, about uh, right towards the end, there's this seven-day, it almost seems like a little separate feast for the people that were in the citadel of Susa. They were kind of right up there close to the king. He decides to throw another feast kind of at the end. And so he decides at the end of the feast to say, you know what, I'm going to bring my wife out here. Her name was Queen Vashti, and he calls for her. And the Bible doesn't say exactly what he wanted her to do. It just says that he wanted to show her off for her beauty. Now, there may be other things that would have been involved in that. Regardless, the Bible doesn't say why, but Queen Vashti wanted no part of it. She said, I ain't coming. And the king, Ahasuerus, got so angry that he decided to say, you know what, no more queen for you. And he dethroned her, and he basically sent her away. That was the kind of guy he was, real loving guy. You'd love to hang out with him someday. Well, sometime after that, somebody came to him with an idea. Hey, king, why don't, why don't we have a contest here? And uh, there's a lot wrapped up into this. Let's just call it a beauty contest, okay? There's probably a lot, of, a lot of other parts that were wrapped up into it, but he has a beauty contest, and they say, why don't you do this beauty contest? We'll bring in the young ladies from all 127 provinces of your empire. And, and as they come in, they're basically gonna try out before you. We're gonna give them time to beautify themselves and we're going to give them a certain diet and cosmetics and actually uses that word in there and then you're you're just going to pick a queen out of there it's going to be a big old beauty contest big old pageant and you're going to pick your queen ultimately king said you know what sounds like a good idea to me and so that's what they decided to run with and so as this begins to unfold we see that esther and her cousin step into the picture so let's begin here in esther chapter 2 let's begin in verse 5 Esther chapter 2 verse 5 it says now there was at the citadel in Susa remember this is the winter residence of King Ahasuerus the citadel is a fortress it was elevated on high ground there was in the citadel in Susa a Jew whose name was Mordecai the son of Jair the son of Shammai the son of Kish a Benjamite who had been taken into exile from Jerusalem with the captives who had been exiled with Jeconiah king of Judah whom Nebuchadnezzar the king of Babylon had exiled all right a lot of names there that you don't have to remember except remember the name of Mordecai he was bringing up Hadassah that is Esther 
his uncle's daughter. So this would make Mordecai and Esther cousins. He was raising her, it, it says, for she had neither father nor mother. Now the young lady was beautiful of form and face, and when her father and her mother died, Mordecai took her as his own daughter. So it came about when the command and the, dec the decree of the king were heard, many young ladies were gathered to the citadel of Susa into the custody of Haggai, that Esther was taken to the king's palace. Now this may have been uh, with or without her will. She was taken to the king's palace into the custody of Haggai who was in charge of the women now the young lady pleased him and found favor with him so he quickly provided her with her cosmetics and food gave her seven choice maids from the king's palace and transferred her and her maids to the best place in the harem Esther did not make known her people or her kindred for Mordecai her cousin had instructed her that she should not make them known so understand this picture here the beauty contest is unfolding. Esther has been brought to the residence of the king, Ahasuerus, whether against her will or with her permission, we don't know. She's been brought there, and she has already struck a chord with one of the leaders in the king's court. She's being treated with favor, and yet there's a secret here that nobody else knows really except her cousin Mordecai. She's a Jew. She's not living in Jerusalem. She's not living in the land of the Jews. She's in the Persian Empire 900 miles away. There are other Jews, obviously, as we'll see, as I mentioned before, that are living in that area. Long story short, Esther is going to be selected. She's going to win the contest. She's going to be the queen. Around that time, somewhere in there, her cousin Mordecai learns of a, of a, of a specific uh, instance that took place where the king was threatened. Now, follow me here. This is going to kind of be a little, little tangent that's going to circle back later. Mordecai is hanging outside the, 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 the king's residence, so to speak, there in Susa, and he overhears... A couple of um, uh, uh, folks who were conspiring to murder the king. He overhears this conversation. It's like you're hanging out at McDonald's and you learn that somebody's going to, you know, assassinate somebody close to you. So what Mordecai does is he says, you know what, I can't keep this to myself. I've just heard this. I've got to get news to Esther because she's the queen after all. She's got to tell the king, Ahasuerus. And he does that. He shares this information he's heard. Look at what it says here in chapter 2, verse 22. It kind of unpacks this for us a little bit. Chapter 2, verse 20, 22, it says, But the plot became known to Mordecai. He told Queen Esther, and Esther informed the king in Mordecai's name. Now, when the plot was investigated and found to be so, all right, when they learned that, yep, he's telling the truth, both of the conspirators, they were both hanged on a gallows, and it was written in the book of the Chronicles in the king's presence. Well, a few years later, hang on to that little tidbit. A few years later, there's another man who enters this true story, and his name is Haman. Haman was a member of King Ahasuerus' court. You with me so far? But he was an enemy of the Jews. Haman was one who, like King Ahasuerus, he liked to get uh, glory and honor shown towards him. And when he would walk through the city, it was customary when people would see Haman, this kind of a right-hand man to the king. He had access to the king. He was part of the king's court. When they would see Haman, people would bow down before him, and Haman loved it. He loved it. He lived for this. But there was one person in the city who wouldn't bow down to him. Guess who it was? Mordecai the Jew. Why is that? Because, well, Jews have a one true living God. He's not going to bow the knee to some other human person, right? And so when Haman would walk by, Mordecai would 
wouldn't bow. Everybody else is bowing. Mordecai's not going to bow. And Haman was enraged over this. Absolutely lit up as a result of this. To the point to where he brings it to the king. Now look at chapter 3, verse 8. Mordecai, or Haman knew that Mordecai was a Jew. For Esther, nobody knows this yet except her cousin. Chapter 3, verse 8. Then Haman said to King Ahasuerus, There's a certain people. He's speaking about the Jews. Scattered and dispersed among the peoples in all the provinces of your kingdom, he says to the king. Their laws are different from those of all other people, and they do not observe the king's laws. And so it is not in the king's interest to let them remain. If it's pleasing to the king, let it be decreed that they be destroyed. And I'll pay 10,000 talents of silver into the hands of those who carry on the king's business to put into the king's treasuries. Well, the king took his signet ring from his hand. He gave it to Haman, the son of Hamadatha, the Agagite, the enemy of the Jews. And the king said to Haman, the silver's yours and the people also to do with them as you please. The king said, basically, you want to eliminate them? Eliminate them. I will put this into a decree that cannot be reversed. Remember, no one but Mordecai knows that Esther is a Jew. And so when Esther learns of this decree... She is broken because she knows what it means. Chapter 4, verse 3. In each and every province where the command and the decree of the king came, there was great mourning among the Jews with fasting, weeping, and wailing, and many lay on sackcloth and ashes. Then Esther's maidens and her eunuchs came and told her, and the queen writhed in great anguish, and she sent garments to clothe Mordecai that he might remove his sackcloth from him, but he did not accept them. All of the Jews are in mourning because of what the king has decreed. Mordecai, who knows the rest of the story, he knows that his cousin that he raised Esther is a Jew by heritage. No one else knows. He sends word to her, you got to go to the king. You've got to tell him who you are. You, you, who you are as a Jew. You've got to step in. You've got to intercede. Otherwise, this is not going to end well. He sends word to Esther to approach the king and to intercede. Look at what it says in chapter 4 down in verse 10. Then Esther spoke to Hathak and ordered him to reply to Mordecai. Send a message back to Mordecai. Mordecai has told her, you need to step to the king, explain to him what's going on, tell him who you are as a Jew. She says, no, let me send this message back to Mordecai. Verse 11, all the king's servants and the peoples of the king's provinces know that for any man or woman who comes to the king, to the inner court, who's not summoned, he has but one law, that he be put to death. Unless the king holds out to him the golden scepter so that he may live. And I have not been summoned to come to the king for these 30 days. And so they related Esther's words to Mordecai. This is the moment of peril. Remember, every, every hero story has a moment of peril, and this is it. I mean, the whole Jewish race who lives in the Persian Empire are on the very precipice, on the very edge of just being demolished, just being destroyed and exterminated, so to speak. And in the moment of peril, what do heroes do? Look at what it says in chapter 4, verse 13. 
Then Mordecai told them to reply to Esther, Do not imagine that you in the king's palace can escape any more than all the Jews. For if you remain silent at this time, relief and deliverance will arise for the Jews from another place, and you and your father's house will perish. And who knows whether you have not attained royalty for such a time as this. Who knows, he says, whether you have not attained royalty for such a time as this. Think about this for just a second. What if God has done everything that he's done for you? And what if he has given everything that he's given to you specifically and personally for more than just yourself? We tend to think, you know what? God delivered me, God provided for me, God bailed me out, God blessed me. We thank him for it, and rightly so. But we never pause to think, what if he did all that, not just for me where it stops, but so that he can also do this through me to benefit and bless somebody else? What if he has done for you, and what if he has given you all that he's done and all that he's given for more than just yourself? What if he has given you certain talents in your life? What if you have the ability to crunch numbers? What if you have the ability to fix and repair and build things with your hands? What if you have the ability to sew or to bake or to lead or to communicate or whatever it is that you have as a special ability? What if God gave you all of that for more than just your own personal benefit? What if God ultimately has given and done everything for you for more than just you? And In fact, let's just blow it out a little further. What if he allowed that hardship or that valley, or that difficulty that came in your life? What if when he led you through the other side, what if a way he wants to redeem that is not just bringing you through it, but also using it to be, and using you to be a blessing to someone else who's in the midst of that journey that he already brought you through? Does that make sense? 2 Corinthians chapter 1, Paul says, it's the same God who has given us all comfort, who desires to use us in our comfort to be a comfort to someone else. What if that hardship you face, that valley, that dark day, that when God set you free and he rescued you or he's bringing you through it, what if he wants to use you to meet up with someone in the midst of that same valley, just further back than you, were, than you are to help them through? What if he gave you that position? What if he put you in that area of leadership? What if he planted you where he's planted you, even, even geographically in the neighborhood you live in, for a reason bigger than yourself, for such a time as this? <laughs> Look at what Esther says. Verse 15, Esther gets this message from her cousin. Hey, what if he put you where you are as queen for such a time as this so she sends a message back to Mordecai she's like all right I get it go verse 16 assemble all the Jews who are found in Susa fast for me do not eat or drink for three days night or day I and my maidens also will fast in the same way and thus I will go into the king which is not according to the law and if I perish I perish. Remember what heroes do. They step into the peril. They step into the chaos from the outside, willingly bringing what it takes for rescue. Not because they have what it takes, but because the God who's the ultimate hero desires to use them if they're only willing to obey.
to follow. Principle number three, you cannot be a hero without seeing and embracing the moment. What if Esther had said, yeah, all right, cousin Mordecai, yeah, I get it, but you know what? I got a really cushy job here. I've been the queen for years, and the food's really good, and I get a lot of attention, and the accommodations, I mean, have you seen this place? I mean, hello? He already kicked one queen to the curb. I'm not going to be the next. Let somebody else do it. What if she just said that? What if she'd have said, you know what? I don't have what it takes. I'm not well equipped for this. I'm not a communicator. I'm not a leader. I'm not whatever, 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 whatever. Here's my list of reasons why I'm not the right person to do this. I am not going to embrace this moment. What would happen? How would history have ultimately turned? But instead, she listened, she looked, and she made the commitment to embrace the moment. She stepped in, and ultimately, God used her, not as the sole hero, but ultimately as his representative to help set these people free. Let me ask you a question. When you listen to your culture when you listen to your community when you listen to the people around you what needs do you hear do you hear them they're there what comments do you hear from people in conversation that shows you there's a need in this person's life what do you hear when you listen to the needs around you what do you see when you look into your culture your community to the relationships around you to the people that you cross paths with what do you see as it relates to needs that surround you because they're there We miss far more of them than we see. And have you prayed, God, would you use me today to be a hero in somebody else's life? Not so that I can get credit and glory, not so somebody will mail me a cape from Amazon and show how special I am, but Lord, I just want to be your representative because you're a hero God who rescues people, and I just want to be your representative in this world to fill that void in the life of someone who needs to be rescued. And Esther did all of that. And when we embrace the moment, what we find is is that we get a front row seat to see some of the greatest work that God's ever done in a way that doesn't bring us any glory or attention. It gives him all the glory, but we get the byproduct, the benefit of saying, man, oh man, it's good to be used by the Lord. (laughs) God's equipped you. God's given you special talents and gifts and experiences. We've got folks in our church right now. I'll, I'll give you an example, and I won't name the person by name. But here in our, in our city on the front lines, especially in these days, is a ministry called Thrive that's reaching people. I've got two people in this ministry, actually, that, I'm, that I can think of uh, that are reaching people as an alternative to, abort- to abortion that's pro-life. Right across the street from Planned Parenthood, always needing volunteers. We've got one person in our church who has a medical background, another in our church who has a military background, one volunteers uh, a couple of times a month to bring their medical expertise, the other brings his size and his experience to drive the van and to pray and to offer a, a, a sense of protection there as they're having conversation with women choosing between life and death. Both equipped, both uh, poured into, both gifted by the Lord in very different ways, both stepping into the chaos to help rescue and be a hero in their own right. And all of us have something that if we only offer it to him, like a few fish and a little bit of bread like the kid did in the Gospels, to say, Lord, I don't have a lot, but what I have I give to you. God will use you. You know how the story ends, right? A lot of you. Esther 
invites the king and Haman, the enemy, to a little banquet, just the three of them. They comply. King listens to her, doesn't kill her. And in that banquet, she says, hey, listen, I want to invite you back tomorrow. It's like a little teaser. (laughs) I'm going to make a special request. They come back, and it's there that second time when they meet that Esther essentially looks at Haman and says, this is the man who has who has, um, has brought danger to my people. She discloses who she is as a Jew, and ultimately, long story short, there's a lot wrapped up in here, a lot of irony. The king eventually says, you know what? Down with Haman, he is hung on a gallows that he had built to hang her cousin Mordecai, and eventually what the king does, because he can't repeal his decree, he puts a new decree in place, and he says, I decree that the Jews have the right to arm themselves and to defend themselves on the day that this massacre was supposed to take place. And they're rescued and they're delivered. Still today, Jews all over the world celebrate what's called Purim, P-U-R-I-M. That tracks all the way back to this true story where a woman named Esther, listened and saw, stepped into the chaos, embraced the moment. God, the hero, used her to be a hero in that day. What might that God want to do through your life if you're only willing to listen, to see, and to embrace the moment? All of this would point to the coming of a Savior who would come almost 500 years later, his name being Jesus, who still to this day is meeting ordinary people like you and me, lost in our sin, separated from God, with a long train of failures to our credit. That same Jesus who would come 500 years later, still today hears the prayer of people like us and you, who says, Lord, I've blown it and I've sinned and I'm guilty before God, but Jesus, you died for me and you rose for me and today I admit my sin and ask you to forgive me and to take over and for all who say that and really mean it, he'll forgive, he'll deliver, he'll set free and he'll keep forever, even you. Let's pray. So God, what an amazing story. So so many details we just couldn't cover that are just twists and turns in this story. And Lord, it's interesting because in this book, it's the one book in the Bible where you're not named. You're not even mentioned in the book of Esther, and yet it's as though the author who wrote it, you wrote it ultimately. It's almost as though they say to us that, that, that you were there, we just need to go looking for you. And when we go looking for you there, Lord, we see your hand at work all through the book of Esther. Your providence, your plan being played out all the way down to putting a person in place who was an orphan, who was a Jew, who wasn't even from that area necessarily in her heritage that you put in just the right place for just the right time. And she embraced the moment and sets an incredible example for the rest of us. And so, Lord, may we look for where you're working as well. And may we listen. And may the attitude of our heart be demonstrated as we ask you consistently, Lord, use me today to be a hero. It may, it may be in a way that nobody else even knows. And it may not even change the world. It may bring a smile or it may drag somebody out of death and into life. <laughs> but God, use us, we pray. And I, I pray that we'll be that kind of a church. 
that embraces the moments that you put before us, that we wouldn't be so self-absorbed, that we wouldn't be fearful, but Lord, that we would present ourselves down to a person to step into another's chaos with love and compassion and grace to say we're not the answer, but we know the one who is to lead them there. And God, may you always get the credit, all of it, because only you deserve it. And so we praise you for being a God who rescues today for the people you put in our lives, God, whether that be a mom, whether that be a friend, whether that be someone that we've never even known who steps in and who rescues us. Lord, we acknowledge today that it's always you at the end of the day. And for that, God, we thank you. In Jesus' name, we pray.